0: Hello and welcome to this Outchanging World podcast from RNZ National, presented by me, Alison Balance. A few weeks ago, Australia announced it was finally getting into the space race with the creation of its own space agency. New Zealand, on the other hand, already has many strings to its space bow, as William Ray is about to find out for us. He'll explain how University of Auckland students are joining the space race to investigate a highly controversial theory about earthquakes. What New Zealand startup Rocket Lab thinks is the future for satellite technology, and why studying ancient black holes with radio telescopes is critical for driverless cars.
1: Right now, there are about one and a half thousand functioning satellites in orbit above the Earth. They're involved in everything from scanning the planet for signs of nuclear missile launches, to measuring climate change, to beaming the latest All Blacks test to your Sky TV dish. But if the likes of Rocket Lab get their way, that one and a half thousand number is set to rise in the very near future. Rocket Lab is a private space company which plans to create a New Zealand-based space industry launching satellites into orbit from the Mahia Peninsula in Hawke's Bay. These days, Rocket Lab's a US-owned company with headquarters in Los Angeles, but it was founded by New Zealander Peter Beck, who's also the chief executive.
2: What's happening in space right now is people are disaggregating these large singular platforms into lots of little satellites because you get a lot more robustness in your fleet and it's also much more affordable. At Rocket Lab, we don't really see ourselves as building a rocket. What we actually see ourselves as is enabling an entire new revolution in the way that that we use space. And it all comes down to frequency and getting those small satellites on orbit to build these constellations to provide new and uh, and affordable services.
1: What is the advantage of having a smaller satellite?
2: Uh, Let's talk about um, satellite television. So um, the way satellite television is done in New Zealand right now is there is a satellite that's about the size of a school bus and it costs around about a billion dollars to build and um, it's got a lifetime of 25 years and it sits out in the geosynchronous belt which is about 30,000 kilometres away um, in a very narrow piece of space where the Earth's gravitational field isn't, uh, isn't impacting it. And um, that's what's providing you television. It took five, sometimes even 10 years to build. It's north of a billion-dollar asset. Now, the other way you could provide satellite television to New Zealand would be to build satellites about the size of a microwave and uh, put up uh, a number of them. It would cost you you know, order magnitude less. You would uh, be able to deploy the Constellation in a much more rapid way. And if one of them has an issue that's fine, you just move the Constellation around and can resume your service. With the large school bus that's sitting up there right now, if it has an issue, then we're without television, end of story.
0: Five, four, three,
3: two, one, liftoff. Liftoff confirmed.
1: This is a clip of a promotional video celebrating Rocket Lab's first test launch of their Electron rocket in May of this year. That test launch reached space, but failed to achieve orbit. According to the company, there was a problem with some third-party data-gathering equipment, which forced them to abort the launch early. But Peter Beck says the rocket itself performed perfectly and is hoping the next test, scheduled for the summer, will achieve orbit.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we're, were very happy with the, the performance of the vehicle during the flight, last flight. Um, but, you know, we still are very much in a test programme and, you know, think of it like a car. Um, you've taken it down around the block for the first time and all seems good. But, um, you know, now we need to stretch its legs. So, um, so, you know, we're still very much in a test flight phase.
1: Some industry commentators have raised concerns about the viability of the business model of small commercial launches like Rocket Lab. Dr George Sowers, an independent consultant and former chief scientist and vice president of United Launch Alliance, wrote this about the company's prospects earlier in the year.
4: Rocket Lab has some interesting technology, such as the electric pump-driven engine, and they have embraced the -the state-of-the-art manufacturing technologies. However, the small payload market is extremely difficult for commercial companies to make a profit. There are several reasons for this. First, the small payload market is not robust. There are many potential customers, but few are able to afford the price of a dedicated launch. On the bright side, there is some indication that the market might be picking up. For example, with companies like Planet. Second, there is fierce competition from nations, India, China, Russia, etc., and larger launchers offering small payload launches as rideshare. Plus, there are a number of other companies vying for the same market. If Rocket Lab succeeds, they will be the first commercial company to do so in a small market. Many have failed, including SpaceX, who discontinued the Falcon One small launcher after only a handful of launches.
1: SpaceX has turned to focus on larger, reusable rockets, the theory being that if you don't have to build a new rocket for every launch, it will lead to a radical reduction in cost. But Peter Beck says reusable rockets are only ever likely to capture a small segment of the launch market.
2: When you have a very large launch vehicle um, and 60 or $100 million uh, sunk into the cost of that vehicle, then it makes really good sense to try and recover it. But um, in order to recover, you know, a rocket, you you trade up to 50% of your payload or, you know, the the total mass that you can can lift. So, um, you know, for a a large launch vehicle, that that kind of makes sense. But for a small launch vehicle where the costs uh, aren't the same, then, you know, the the economics don't even close.
1: Instead, Rocket Lab's plan is to focus on mass-producing rockets which can launch pretty much on demand. Part of the way they hope to achieve this is through new technologies like 3D printing and a radical new fuel system.
2: Firstly, if you look at the rocket engine, if you distill out, what are the complicated things in a rocket engine? What makes a rocket engine so tricky? Uh, it comes down to the turbo machinery. So these are these are pumps that are traditionally run off another rocket engine, um, and they spin at, at immense temperatures and, and speeds, uh, and and that's the bit that that you know that always Causes failures or is the most expensive bit to build. So we completely decoupled that thermodynamic problem and turned it into software. So we electrically turbo pump um, all the propellants. So we take the propellants out of the tank at a very low pressure, and we pump them to a very high pressure where they're combusted in the in the uh, in the, the thrust chamber of the engine. And then um, 3D printing. Um, normally, the way you would produce a, a rocket engine thrust chamber. Is uh, is a very slow process of, in fact, growing the metal. So you start off with a, a copper billet, and then you grow on the outside of the copper nickel, and that takes many months. Now, if you're trying to launch once a week, then you haven't got many months to wait for a, a chamber to grow. So, um, you know, we we looked at and invested in very heavily. Um, at the time, and anyway, it was uh, you know manufacturing techniques that would solve that problem for us, and of course additive manufacturing or 3D printing is uh, you know solved that problem very very well. The
1: other side to Rocket Lab's plan for cheap rapid launches is the location of the launch site in New Zealand.
2: Um, there's kind of two things you need for an ideal launch site, and one is access to inclination or the amount of angles that you can you can shoot to, to reach different orbits. And then, um, in our case as well, uh, frequency so out of America, you know America went to space about 21 times last year, so uh, that's that's a fraction of one of our customers' constellations and the reason why it's very difficult to launch from America at a high frequency is it's is purely infrastructure so there's just a lot of air traffic there's a lot of marine traffic, um, and there's just a lot of people so that makes it makes it very difficult. Um, you know what we're trying to achieve here with a high frequency is to open access to space up like like it's never been seen before, and in order to do that, um, you know we, we need access to a large degree of inclination, but also access to a large frequency. So a small island nation in the middle of the Pacific is exactly what you want, um, where the air traffic is is um, desolate, the, the shipping traffic is desolate, and we can achieve all the possible orbits you could imagine.
1: Isn't it better to launch from nearer to the equator?
2: No. I mean, you get, more, uh, you get more mass to orbit. It's more efficient for a given trajectory. But a lot of our customers are going sun-synchronous, which is shooting straight down. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're on the equator or not.
1: Getting to space more often, less expensively, is primarily a goal driven by commercial imperatives, but Peter Beck says it could also have side benefits for scientific missions.
2: You would be horrified if I told you what the resolution of the cameras are on the Mars Curiosity rover. Um, it's, it's like 1990s technology. And the reason why that is is because they're space qualified. Um, they've gone through a whole lot of space heritage testing. And uh, they're, they're a very well-known article. Now, if you could do the same mission for a couple of orders of magnitude lower cost then you would take the risk and you would put much more modern technology and, uh, and, and you know really push the boundaries. And that's exactly what a small satellite enables you to do. No longer do you have to spend a billion dollars in five years to find out whether it works or not. Um, you can iterate really, really quickly, um, develop new technologies. And where the CubeSat platform can be quite good is you can take a new sensor, um, slam it in a CubeSat and launch it and space-qualify the sensor um, and, and retire all your risk before you go and build your really expensive satellite. Rocket Lab's
1: customers range everywhere from NASA to Auckland University. It's currently running a project for students to design and build a CubeSat to be launched in about a year's time. A CubeSat is a standard model for a miniature satellite invented about 20 years ago by California Polytechnic State University and Stanford University. The researchers behind Auckland University's student CubeSat project are Dr Nick Rattenbury from the
5: Faculty of Science and Dr John Cater from the Faculty of Engineering. It's uh, a box, uh, 100 millimetres on each side, which is about four inches cube, and that's a standard uh, unit from which you can construct more complex uh, satellites. But our first mission is around one of these cubes. Mm. And most of that uh, cube will be filled up with
6: the fairly ordinary bits that go into a satellite to so things like power and communications and that takes up a fair amount of space and what volume is left over in the satellite, that's for the students to fill up with their payload. Now even just getting to that stage, we're talking about quite an expensive little piece of kit, it's certainly not a toy and we shall be watching our students very carefully as they do their unboxing of this,
5: <laughs> this so, equipment. So, so this is the
6: team of students that. building the CubeSat are the winners of a
1: competition which has been run over the last year to come up with the best proposal for a satellite based research program Project. The winning team are proposing to use a satellite to investigate a theory about earthquakes, which is probably best described as fringe.
6: The students were given free reign to come up with uh, an interesting mission profile, uh, a question to answer. So one of the team came up and found this theory that uh, geological activity, seismic activity, could be reflected in some way in the behaviour of the ionosphere. Now this is pretty um, out there stuff, as you say, but again, testing these theories is part of what science is. If you want to understand the truth, then you have to design an experiment to go test the theory and come up with empirical evidence to either support or disprove the theory that you come up with.
5: And, and we think there's other interesting information they can obtain from, from the sensing and the recording, the measurements they'll be doing in the ionosphere anyway. So,
6: As advertised, the ionosphere is very poorly understood um, in region of Earth's atmosphere, so whatever information the students gain, the, the, the data that they obtain... Uh, will be useful in any regard, whether it can be tied to some strange seismic activity further down the crust of the earth.
1: You might be imagining the student team as a hardcore unit of engineering and science majors, but Nick and John say they're actually working hard to avoid that.
6: Our graduates need to learn how to work together in a heterogeneous team, a team of people coming from lots of different backgrounds. And so we wanted to replicate that in some small way with our. Uh, student program, a student competition to design satellites. So we require the teams, when they get formed, like John mentioned, not to be comprised solely of students from one faculty or one department. We absolutely did not want an entire team of engineers. We did not want an entire team of scientists. We wanted them to talk to each other, extend outwards. If they didn't know something, they had to go away and find out, find out from other members uh, other mm-hmm. students from other faculties. And so we mm-hmm. invited students from across the entire university, so from humanities, the faculties of arts, business, education, as well as the fairly obvious technological ones from engineering and science to contribute, to send or to, to join a team and come up
5: with a problem. So the other thing to say is that uh, space is, is hard. It's difficult, and the projects that we have them working on are complex, and we want to give them experience at trying to solve these complex uh, problems for which there may not be an answer. And uh, the diversity in the team from the student body is important in coming up with innovative solutions and answers um, you know, for this hardware. And for instance, if
6: you have a team comprising somebody who doesn't come from your discipline, they are more likely to be the people who throw in the challenging questions and challenge the assumptions that you might, be, you might have trained under or lived with for many years and they're the ones who could be the most valuable on the team saying, well, why can't we do that? Why is, is that a problem? And that challenges the team to say, well, the reason why we can't do that, hang on, no, we can do this. After all, you know, it pushes the team in directions which might be uncomfortable, which might mm-hmm. be uh, beyond their own expertise, and they recognize their own limitations and decide that they're going to address that by finding somebody who can help them. <laughs>
1: Right now Nick and John say their students are putting themselves through their paces launching smaller rockets with very basic electronics on board.
5: We're using those to teach them about uh, telemetry, about how uh, satellites communicate with a ground station. Uh, They have simple sensors with them, they have Wi-Fi, they can make uh, measurements of altitude and location and do a little job. So these are maybe three inches long and two inches in diameter. We treat the rocketry
6: program as something for the students to do while uh, we're waiting for the satellite componentry to come to us from Scotland. And uh, like John mentioned, it gets them started on playing with hardware, which is going to be similar to the sort of hardware that they'll be using for our satellite mission. Learning how to work with teams, how to share resources, how to share information, and work to a deadline. And now uh, we are perhaps uh, six days away from receiving our satellite components, which is going to be very exciting. It's going to be a very exciting unboxing exercise for us. And uh, the students will then start to get their hands on the actual flight componentry from which they're going to build their satellite mission.
1: Christmas is coming a little bit early at Auckland University. (laughs) It's (laughs) certainly true. (laughs) Rocket science, of course, is quite complicated, and if any of a million things go wrong, these fancy components could end up as nothing more than an extremely expensive shooting star as they burn up on re entry. But Nick and John say the students' project will be a success even if their satellite fails to transmit a single kilobyte of data.
6: The students um, react with some dismay when we tell them that a large part of what you have to do is to document clearly everything that you do so that other members of your team can pick up where you left off. And all these sorts of skills are vital skills that we require our graduates to have before they go out into the workforce.
5: If you can imagine this CubeSat, and I said it's a, it's a, a litre of volume, and uh, the mass constraint, which is an important one, is about a kilogram, 1.2 kilograms maximum um, uh, mass for this uh, object. The paperwork is about one tonne. I, I don't think you're exaggerating, are you? I'm not exaggerating, no, then. yeah, yeah. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So, so this, this is, this is how, how it is with complicated devices like medical devices or space hardware, and this is part of the learning process for the students, is understanding that it needs to be traceable, you need to be responsible for the changes that you make to a design and, and the actions and uh, consequences of your um, device. And for instance, we've seen in the past, even the, the most
6: talented, the biggest operations in the world still managed to screw it up by not saying, oh, by the way, that number I just gave you is in metres per second, not um, imperial units.
5: We have some uh, examples uh, from NASA from satellites or uh, vehicles that cost billions of dollars being destroyed by small mistakes. Yes, which were not documented properly. So (laughs) even with any mission that we choose
6: to put up there, the skills that the students must develop around that will be useful in just about every walk of life they have, particularly if they're going into mission-critical or otherwise hard um, technological design projects.
1: Paperwork is also a big deal for the government department responsible for promoting and regulating the embryonic New Zealand space industry. The New Zealand Space Agency sits within the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. It's a mere 18 months old and was set up largely to support Rocket Lab, which has also received a significant amount of money and government funding. But the General Manager of Science and Innovation at MB, Peter Crabtree, is quick to point out that Rocket Lab isn't the sole focus of his agency's
7: efforts. Right from the beginning of, uh, of MB getting involved in this, we've always seen that needed to be, we needed to look beyond Rocket Lab and its activity. So while Rocket Lab, we've been very lucky in a sense as an anchor tenant, and, that, and that's Uh, enabled us to do a lot of things. It's also, we've been thinking well beyond that. But but a lot of our thinking around the space industry goes well beyond launch. So there may well be other launch launch companies in the future. We're not foreseeing that happening in the near term. We think that most of the opportunities are going to be in associated industries. So that's everything from manufacturing to to offering satellite applications that are derived from space-based activities.
1: MB's logic is similar to that of Nick Rattenbury and John Cater's student satellite program. While getting to space is an exciting prospect, the knowledge and expertise gained along the way is the real goal. And Peter Crabtree says that knowledge won't just be gained by
7: Rocket Lab. We already have uh, manufacturers like Raycon who, who for a long time have built, been building you know, circuits that have been used in, in, in satellites and um but we also have with rocket lab a a, a whole lot of um suppliers in the in their in the supply chain who are contributing to now space industry they didn't start off in those businesses contributing to the space industry they're contributing to other industries and outputs you know whether it was yacht building and things like that so i think that's one of the great things about space activities is that uh you see a lot of Kind of general uses of the technologies that are used, and uh, and doing this type of manufacturing for space requires you to be very very precise, have very high standards, and to kind of conform to sort of global best practice, and that has great advantages for the broader manufacturing sector. Part of the government's
1: plan to boost the use of space technology in New Zealand is the very newly formed Centre for Space Science Technology, based in Alexandra. Right now it's running on a skeleton crew, and Chief Executive Steve Cotter is most concerned with working out which accounting software to use and which staff to hire. But eventually, he says the job of the centre will be to act as the nerve centre for space science across New Zealand.
8: Well, the main goal is to help researchers and industry make better decisions through the use of Earth observation data. So that includes space-based data that's taken from satellites, information that can be gathered by drones or, as we say, in situ, which is, you know, soil moisture probes in the Earth themselves taking readings directly uh, down at at ground level. Uh, One of the work packages that we uh, are looking at is the, the possibility of building our own small Satellites, they call them CubeSats, and, um, and they would go up, circle around the Earth, take pictures or take readings you know, with their instruments and beam that data back down to Earth. And that could be used for a whole bunch of things from urban planning to uh, water management or monitoring the environment, that sort of thing.
1: While New Zealand launch satellites are some way in the future, there are already local scientists heavily involved in the cutting edge of space exploration, and they do it without any of their staff or equipment ever leaving the ground. Professor Sergei Gulaev is the director of the Institute for Radio Astronomy and Space Research at Auckland University of Technology.
3: We have the only radio astronomical observatory in New Zealand. We have uh, two radio telescopes. One is uh, big, 12-metre diameter dish, and the second one is even bigger, 30-metre diameter dish. And we use them for astronomy, astrophysics, uh, uh, space geodesy, spacecraft uh, tracking, uh, and a few more different uh,
1: goals. There are more than 100 radio telescopes around the world, but the two dishes Sergei Gulaev is in charge of are particularly important. That's because they're a very long way away from other radio telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere, which makes them critical for something called very long baseline interferometry.
3: Using uh, several dishes around the world and combining data from them, we virtually create a radio telescope of the size of a continent or the size of the Earth. And the bigger the size, the greater resolution, the the size of the pixel on uh, the image is smaller. We can see more details. And sometimes the image is very interesting. It can be double object or object with jets, uh, uh, relativistic jets, and some some very, very interesting uh, things. New Zealand's remote location deep in the southern hemisphere
1: also means AUT's telescopes can look at parts of the sky which are invisible to
3: most other observatories. Some objects are available only for us. For example, if you take um, the center of the Milky Way galaxy, a very mysterious object with supermassive black hole, we have fantastic view of uh, uh, this uh, constellation of Sagittarius, where it is located, and uh, it is much, much better. We can observe it almost all the time, not not like in the Northern Hemisphere.
1: The telescopes also have a role in monitoring distant spacecraft, in particular the Mars
3: Express. Mars Express already more than 10 years orbits uh, Mars, and from time to time uh, some interesting things happen, and they need our help. On one side, because we are in the right hemisphere at this moment. On the other side, because we use this very long baseline interferometry method with other observatories. And we can determine precise location of Mars Express. And also we can determine its precise velocity, acceleration, and all other parameters by just looking at it. Why it is important... It is important for correction of its orbit around Mars. And also, sometimes it goes, uh, it moves close to one of Mar- Martian uh, satellites, uh, one of Martian moons, uh, like Phobos. Recently, we observed uh, uh, its passage near Phobos. And it was used in order to determine uh, the mass of Phobos. By looking at what happens with this Mars Express when it comes close to Phobos, how its orbit changes, we can calculate, we can compute a precise mass of Phobos. And uh, can you imagine the surprise of scientists when uh, it was found that um, actually mass divided by volume, which is density, density is very low. Why is it low? We look at Phobos and we see that it's probably made of either metal or at least of rock, um, and it should have quite significant density, but the density is very low. Uh, and people started speculating, maybe it is hollow inside. And some people immediately said, oh, maybe it is uh, one of spacecraft left by uh, aliens uh, millions of years ago. And we just need to drill inside and get inside and we'll find some treasure.
6: That's no moon. It's a space station. It's too big to be a space
1: station. For what it's worth, ancient alien spacecraft isn't the only theory for the mysterious density of Phobos. For example, it's possible that this Martian moon is porous, a bit like a giant lump of pumice. Perhaps the most important role of Sergei's telescopes is helping maintain a map of 2,000 mysterious objects called quasars, which collectively make up what's known as the International Celestial Reference System. Quasars are super bright stellar objects, thousands of times brighter than the entire Milky Way galaxy. They're thought to be caused by titanic eruptions from supermassive black holes. These explosions happened billions of years ago, long before the Earth was formed. But their light is only just reaching us now in the form of radio waves. And those radio waves, it turns out, are fantastically
3: useful. If you take planets, they move through the sky with respect to stars. If you take stars of our galaxy, they all also have their own proper motion. But quasars are so incredibly far away that they keep their position all the time. Basically, these 2,000 quasars we observe uh, regularly, they create a fundamental reference frame to study our planet Earth. Uh, our telescopes are on a rotating and wobbling planet Earth, and we are on tectonic plates which move all the time. And uh, using this immovable fundamental reference frame which is created by these 2,000 quasars, we can judge about very fine details of rotation, motion, uh, wobbling and so on of the Earth and tectonic plates. It is very important now for many purposes. For example, if you imagine a car that uh, moves without a driver, that's our future, and it uh, relies on uh, GPS satellites, and GPS satellites don't care about some irregularities of rotation of the Earth. They don't know about it. They just orbit some mass, and we need to tell them that the Earth slightly slowed down or accelerated a little bit. And we do it. We radio astronomers we provide GPS with this uh, correction. Uh, of uh, position of things on the earth, so if you drive today and you drive on a right you know lane, tomorrow without this correction that we provide, you may your car may, may shift because GPS doesn't know that the' earth slowed down. So every time you log into Google
1: Maps, you can thank Suge Gulaev's radio telescopes staring out into space at the billion-year-old echoes of unfathomably powerful eruptions from the hearts of the very first galaxies.
0: A big thanks to William Ray for that look at New Zealand in space. And many thanks to everyone who contributed. Peter Beck from Rocket Lab. Peter Crabtree from MB. Nick Rattenbury and John Cater from the University of Auckland, Steve Cotter from the Centre for Space Science Technology, and Sergei Guliev from Auckland University of Technology. Thanks for listening. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on November the 23rd, 2017. We are on the web at rnz.co.nz/slash Our Changing World and on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Subscribe to our podcasts at Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes or Radio Public. And while you're there, check out some of the other RNZ offerings, including William Ray's Black Sheep podcast, which looks at shady, controversial and sometimes downright villainous characters in New Zealand history. Bye for now. He kona mai.